Welcome to the Act and Unwind podcast, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. Thank you for listening, and I want to ask that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate to the show notes for this episode, where you will find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere that you listen. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so as to help more people find this show. This week, I'm joined by Sam Gregg, Acton's Director of Research, and Dan Huger, Research Fellow and Librarian here at Acton. Today, we will talk about the idea of raising a family on one income in America. But first, I want to go to Washington, D.C. and the Supreme Court, where last Wednesday, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in the Dobbs case, which is the uh, case uh, regarding the abortion law in Mississippi that bans abortions after the 15-week period. And there are plenty of other great podcasts out there that broke down the oral arguments, the legal questions that are at play here. I want to look at something different, which is I want to look at the impact that the Roe v. Wade and then the Casey decisions had on America culturally and politically and what potential impact an overturning of Roe and Casey would have on America culturally and politically. So, Sam, I want to go to you first. So um, if we're doing the to, to dive into the court tea leave reading for a moment here, uh, it does seem that there is uh, well, the best legal analysts I've heard seem to think that there are five votes here for upholding the or six votes for upholding the Mississippi law and probably five votes for overturning Rowan Casey. You know, a lot could happen between now and probably June when we can expect this opinion to be released. Um, but I, I want to look both backwards and forwards. So you had the road decision, which took abortion out of the legislative process of the states. Um, and I think that there was an understanding. I can't remember who I heard talking about this, that, you know, with a lot of the a lot of the cases around the same time that were being decided, you know, things like Miranda rights, there was an assumption that, you know, there's a hubbub about the case. And then it's just kind of accepted within a few years afterwards. And no one's really talking about Roe. And that turned out very much not to be the case. People were talking about Roe. Uh, and even Ruth Bader Ginsburg made the point that it snat Roe's, the decision in Roe snatched out of the proper process, the legislative process, are dealing with this very thorny issue, at least from a political perspective. So let's look, look, let's look backwards first. What do you think was the impact that this case, Roe being decided by the Supreme Court before the legislative process could really allow states to come to a, in the country to come to a consensus on what they felt about the issue of abortion? What do you think the legacy, assuming that they overturn it, is going to be of that period of time and the impact that had. Well, thanks for that, Eric. I think the first thing to keep in mind is that Roe didn't come out of nowhere uh, in terms of constitutional law. Uh, cases like Griswold versus Connecticut, for example, which came out in 1965, uh, which um, struck down Connecticut and Massachusetts restrictions on access to contraception, 
um, which were grounded on a type of inferred privacy right that that uh, judges discovered, so to speak, in the um, in the Constitution. So it didn't come out of nowhere. This had been there had been a sort of type of structure that was being established for this uh, before Roe was decided. Uh, so the the train was already leaving the station. When it comes so, and of course the impact of this more generally was to establish in a lot of people's minds the court as a type of arbiter of all sorts of questions which hitherto had been the province of legislatures, as you pointed out. So that's the first one thing. The second impact is the way the decision affected Americans' views about abortion. So prior to Roe v. Wade, if you looked at most opinion polling that was done at the time, uh, most people were, were generally against abortion. They could think of exceptions, et cetera, et cetera, but they did, did, certainly did not believe in an expansive abortion license. After Roe v. Wade, and this is a very good case of how we see law shaping culture, the country moved uh, pretty much towards a position where something like three uh, two-thirds of the population were okay, okay with Roe v. Wade. That's not to say they understood it. They didn't quite get that this meant abortion on demand. In fact, many people today still don't understand that Roe and Casey essentially amount to abortion on demand. But there was a shift of public opinion and the law had something to do with that. So that's a second effect. A third effect, um, I would argue, was that it essentially poisoned the process of judicial nominations. Um, Professor Robert George talks about this a lot. Um, he's one of the foremost um, uh, uh, pro-life uh, conservatives and activists uh, in the country. And he makes the point that Roe v. Wade essentially resulted in a poisoning of the whole process of judicial nomination because everything started to come down to, okay, what's your position on Roe v. Wade? What is, that's, that's the litmus test that began to be applied, not just for the Supreme Court, but all sorts of, dis, of um, uh, appointments that were being made. And that really accelerated in the 1980s and 1990s uh, to the point where it became, and certainly, certainly on the left and for some parts of the right, the only question that a lot of people tended to care about. And this really distorted the whole process of judicial nominations because judges don't just deal with abortion, right? They deal with all sorts of other things. And these, these uh, life cases come up relatively infrequently. And when they do, they're usually sort of <laughs> pre-planned and positioned in such a way as to try and move the court in a particular direction on these, on these issues. So uh, assuming that, let's say the court does move in a direction of winding back Roe as well as Casey, uh, and remember, let's keep in mind, Casey is really the attempt of the court to put a put a type of more solid judicial framework about, around Roe because even people like Ruth Bader Ginsburg thought that Roe was a very badly argued judgment and very badly positioned judgment. And Casey was really an attempt to put together some sort of coherent legal framework around the whole abortion question. Uh, but let's say that the court does, say, next June, decide that it's going to 
let's say, um, significantly wind back many of the provisions of both Roe and Casey. To tell you the truth, I don't see the court doing a complete um, overturning in the sense of just saying, well, these are completely decided wrongly. We have to go back to the drawing board and here's a new legal regime. I don't see that happening, uh, certainly not while Justice Roberts is uh, Chief Justice. But assuming that there's some type of significant change in the way that the courts treat this subject, uh, then it could well be that we go back to a situation whereby state legislatures effectively uh, given the responsibility of deciding what each state's position on this will be, right? So, and we already know that there are a number of states that have already passed laws saying that if Roe v. Wade is ever overturned, this is the particular regime that will come into effect in this state. So that's, that's one sort of possibility I see as happening. But in terms of, you know, it really has the whole thing, whatever you're, I mean, I'm very pro-life. But I, I know plenty of pro-choice people who will tell you that they one of their major problems with Roe v. Wade and Casey is the way that it's completely poisoned uh, the functioning of the legal system in this country in ways that are highly undesirable. Yeah, there's a general sense, I think, that the Supreme Court largely codifies in a lot of the cases that they decide consensus that has already been reached by the American people. Um, now, you can take a disagreement with whether or not that is actually what the Supreme Court is supposed to be doing in terms of right. codifying what the American people have essentially come to a, a consensus on. And I, I think an example, no matter what you think of the decision of of them doing that and being a little ahead of the curve, but not provoking the kind of backlash that you've had to Roe is Obergefell. Like, with the exception of some spheres of fringe Twitter, there is really no concerted effort out there to try to oppose and overturn Obergefell in the way that there has been for Roe v. Wade. Uh, so I think that there is there. You really, I think, have an example, as Sam pointed out here, of the court taking something away legislatively that people were working their way through that there wasn't consensus on and trying to impose a consensus on the country. And you see that it really has not worked out. And if anything, the consensus of the time was a pro-life consensus. That's the other thing to keep in mind. Um, at the time, in the early 1970s, America was still very much on the pro, let's call it a pro-life position. And there were states like California, for example, that had legislated to allow abortions in some circumstances. And as, as you know, Ronald Reagan was the governor of California who signed that legislation mm -hmm. and later said it was the biggest mistake in his life. Um, but Roe v. Wade was very much a case of the court, I don't think there's any question about it, really acting in a way to sort of um, – not, even, not, not acting to sort of solidify a, con, a con consensus, but actually trying to establish a new one. And for a certain time, it sort of did. For about, you know, 10 years, that's where Americans went. And then things changed, I think, in the 1980s with Reagan and especially John Paul II. Well, and this might be able <clears throat> to bring together the way we're talking about this and Obergefell and one of the differences. Because one of the sort of cultural legacies of, of Roe was the normalization of abortion. And in fact, you had steadily rising numbers of abortion in this country until the late 80s, early 1990s. That has shifted. We have seen steadily declining 
rates uh, are, are absolute numbers of abortions, uh, with rates being a greater decline because we are, of course, a more populous nation than we were in the uh, in the early 1970s. And one of the cultural transformations, so there was there was that normalization, but that's that that culture has been changing, and that's been steadily changing for 30 years now. Um, and we also had a conversation, particularly religious people in America had this conversation about sorting out what exactly they think of this, um, whether that whether what the court uh, did was welcome or not, and that also involved. Um, you know, a broad-based pro-life movement that was by and large non-sectarian, reaching right. across religious traditions. And non-religious. And non-religious. Right. And Plenty of secular people are, will tell you they're pro-life for particular reasons, but it's not exclusively a religious thing. Yeah, if you were to go back to the time, too, you, you could look at the, the Protestant attitude towards um, the issue of abortion and be that, like, oh, it's really a Catholic cause. And it really, I that think, did, did change a lot. Yes, certainly yeah. changed. And and I think one of the reasons that there's cultural anxiety about Dobbs, given the given the given this context, is we we are living in an era that is much less, in terms of public opinion, hospitable towards abortion than in the early '70s. You know, in that first decade, and there is a cultural shift, and this is one of the reasons I think that there is also not this sort of examination of Obergefell. Because that is a cultural movement that is still on the rise um, of the sort of the sort of gay rights movement is is still in ascendancy in a way that um, the movement for abortion on demand really hasn't been for the last thirty years. I want to come to one of the things that Sam pointed out about uh, judicial nominations, and I, I said I wasn't going to get into the actual legal arguments there, but I want to bring up one point about it because, Dan, you made me think of it, which is one of the things I found interesting. And I recommend people go and listen to the two hours of oral arguments. They are very interesting, and it's worth listening to, and it's it's generally accessible. And I, I would advise people to not do what some uh, uh, commentators in the media have done, which is fail to understand that just because a justice is asking a question, it isn't because that's necessarily their viewpoint. They're probing, you know, what the advocates will say for this. But one of the things that struck me as interesting is that um, the advocate that is uh, defending what is ostensibly the, the Roe regime um, didn't want to get rid of the viability test, which is what's put in there, when one of the elements of what you were just talking about, Dan, is, you know, why is why have things been moving in this direction, right? Medical science is a huge reason for all of that. The ability for people to see ultrasounds and 3D ultrasounds and to hear the heartbeat. And, you know, the way, you know, whether or not we like it, the way science is progressing, the point of viability within probably our lifetimes could be that even in the moment after conception, that that could be, you know, that that life could be moved into something artificial for that child to be brought full term, that it doesn't have to happen within uh, a mother's womb. Now, we can have an entirely different conversation about the about bioethics and medical science and all of that. But it strikes me that at some point, the viability test is going to get obliterated and it's going to be where, um, you know, the most of the 
pro-life movement would argue that it has been, which is at the moment of conception, that it's going to be possible to have viability there. So I found that part of it interesting. Uh, But Dan, for you, you a little more than a month ago, you were at the National Conservative Conference and Sam bringing up the way that I think you can go back. I did. We'll put it in the show notes. I did an interview with um, Ilya Shapiro about uh, his book on judicial nominations and he make the same argument too that you know it has the process of judicial nominations has been entirely ruined because it is just it's a parlor game now of people trying to send the right signals to the people they need to send the right signals to but not answering questions in a direct way because they can't prejudge cases um, it, it's it's just a weird and awful dance that is not helpful towards anything there are no questions asked about anyone's judicial philosophy it's all geared towards basically what Sam said how would you ro- rule on a case that challenges Roe v. Wade. But what I think is interesting, and having you having been at that National Conservative Conference, is there, there are two things that really grew out of Roe being decided as political movements. One of them was the pro-life movement. There really was no organizational, organized, um, non-sectarian, um, and even non-religious, as Sam added to, uh, pro-life movement until Roe was decided and there was something to be in opposition to. One of the other things it created was the Federalist Society and this effort to change the orientation of the judges that you know, lawyers coming up and their philosophy on constitutional interpretation, statute interpretation, who could be nominated to the court. And I find it interesting that some of the people, Dan, that you heard from at the National Conservative Conference, I think in a different way, would want to do what a lot of national conservatism to me wants to do, which is to look at the follies of the left, the things that the left is doing wrong, embrace them, internalize the logic and do the same thing themselves to turn around and say that we need to be asking potential judicial nominees, not the kinds of questions that I think we should be asking them, which is, you know, what is your framework? What is your philosophy for interpreting the Constitution? What is your philosophy for interpreting statute? And to say, would you overturn Roe v. Wade? Now, it may be a moot point come June that we don't need to ask that anymore, but there'd be other cases that would then turn into the litmus test. Um, And I even saw a piece from Rachel Bovard arguing that if Roe and Casey aren't overturned by the court in the Dobbs case, uh, then the conservative legal movement is an absolute failure and it needs to be torn down and rebuilt. Isn't this just an embracing of the same kind of poisoning of the well of judicial nominees by people who I would hope would be defenders of the process and the system in the way that it, I think it's supposed to work? So, I mean, <clears throat> I'm, I'm on the record as saying national conservatism is a political movement. It's not an ideological movement. And part of the way you can tell this is the selective outrage at Conservative Inc. And one of those, one of those named organizations as part of this nebulous Conservative Inc. was the Federalist Society that did come under criticism from many speakers for not overturning Roe. Um, what was interesting is, you know, there was no discussion about, let's say, gun rights since the beginning of the Federalist Society in this nation, which is a very different story, which is a story of clear and consistent legal victories, uh, clear vindication by the court on numerous cases. And that's and that's just one. Or religious liberty. Or I mean, religious the, the religious liberty. liberty record before the Supreme Court is pretty darn good over the last 20-some years. Yeah. We had Blaine amendments before, and now <laughs> now they have been successfully um, challenged. Um, 
but when you look at when you look at this is I think I think those folks that are that are critical um, of the Federalist Society, I don't see them not becoming critical if 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 Dobbs significantly challenges, reinterprets, reframes, overturns Roe or Casey. Um, I think the reaction will be muted golf claps and then, but why not this? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think it's very clear that however the court rules, you will not get a sort of blanket ruling that sort of, you know, applies the 13th Amendment to um, to the unborn. Um, you're likely to get um, a much more modest challenge than something like that that would result in, you know, in, in probably, you know, the best case scenario for the pro-life movement of simply turning this back to a matter of state legislation. Right. But you will have, you will have some folks in the pro-life movement that are not satisfied with that. They want, they want a const, they, they believe that in the constitution as it stands, it protects a life to a, a right to life and that that should be applied in this country um, in a similar way to the courts as the courts applied Roe to the country. So I think you will. I think you will. You are due for some more criticism of the Federalist Society, whatever way this ruling turns. I think you're probably right about that. And what's what's interesting to me is how you know we we, we talked about the creation of the the pro life movement and. Um, as as a result of of the Roe decision and then the Federalist Society coming from all of that, and maybe as we transition to looking forward and what this could potentially mean, um, there there is that maximalist sense, right? That you know we anything but complete victory is unacceptable, uh, which I think is. Interesting that that's an idea being embraced by people who call themselves conservatives, who generally would look to change things um, slowly over time. And again, I can understand with regard to Roe and Casey why the objection to it would be what it is. And I think Sam pointed to this earlier that you know even legal scholars of the left agree that legally speaking, constitutionally speaking, it is a house of cards. Um, but there. Are prudential concerns, right? So, you know, I, I have a lot of disagreements with John Roberts, but I understand what he's trying to hold valuable in the way that he approaches constitutional interpretation. I think he gets it wrong, and I don't think the things that he does in the name of trying to preserve the the um, public opinion respectability of the court always accomplish all of that. But Sam, I mean, it, it, would you agree with Dan that we're looking at probably people who have been maximalist about this, even if you get a, a distinct winding back of Rowan Casey, probably the same people are going to be even find a way to be even more maximalist and to be dissatisfied with what uh, in any other circumstance you would have expect to be viewed as an enormous victory for the pro-life movement, the conservative movement and the conservative judicial movement. Well, if uh, a couple of things. One is um, <clears throat> the the opinion that the Fourteenth Amendment protects human life is outlined, I think, very coherently by John Finnis and Robert George in their amicus brief to the court. Uh, and those are two very serious legal scholars. These are not these are not fringe people. I mean, these are the two of two of the, maybe the two neat leading natural law scholars in the world um, who. <laughs> And they know a lot about constitutional law, including American constitutional law. So um, these people are not 
some these people are not fringe. They really do argue that if you look at the 14th Amendment, if you look to the the context in which it emerged, if you look at the background legal reasoning to it, and they go far back as Blackstone's commentaries on this subject, they, they have a pretty good case to say that the 14th Amendment does apply to uh, the unborn. Now, will the court actually do that? Uh, I, I'm sceptical that they would they would do that. I think it's much more likely that some of the scenarios that we've talked about here are more likely to emerge than than an invocation of the 14th Amendment. Um, but what's interesting about this whole question of the Federalist Society and other such things is one of the one of the curious things I find is that um, we wouldn't be having this discussion, I suspect, right now if it wasn't for the Federalist Society, right? I don't think we would have got to this point whereby we have the Supreme Court actively considering uh, substantially, I mean, and I mean substantially altering the legal regime that treats abortion in this country without the Federalist Society. I just find that very hard to imagine that it would have happened. Now, and of course, they've, they've really shifted the argument because they're saying, look, this is based upon an originalist uh, interpretation of the Constitution, etc., and this is what the Constitution is about. So they've taken it beyond the, the, just the the life issue and to show that what what's in in another sense, and I think Bill McGurn has talked about this in the Wall Street Journal. Journal a lot of this is also um, about what is the role of the judicial system in the United States, right? So that that I think is what the Federalist Society has really changed the discussion so much so now that. Uh, there are plenty of left-leaning legal scholars who would say that the the momentum and the impetus in terms of judicial interpretation and judicial reasoning in the United States is very much of an originalist position. The people who are against originalism are now on the defense throughout the United States. So when I hear people critique the Federalist Society and say, well, you know, they need to be explicit about their position on some particular issues rather than saying, no, this is really a question of the role of the court, et cetera, et cetera. I think they're really missing some of the enormous achievements of the Federalist Society when it comes to shifting the context of the way that the role of the judiciary is understood and discussed this day, so much so that we see, we've seen the left form their own judicial societies, right? Like, what's it, the American Constitutional Society or whatever it's called, as a way for the left to get together and try and come up with a better way of articulating their understanding of judicial interpretation because the Federalist Society has shifted the discussion, um, even in quite left-wing law schools, away from this activist view of the judiciary, so much so that you even have sort of liberal scholars now who are coming up with their own type of originalist arguments. So I think that for for some of these national conservatives, not all, but some of these national conservatives, for them to sort of line up the Federalist Society as an example of everything that's wrong with the conservative movement is to really underplay the Federalist Society's considerable achievements in shaping the way that America, lawyers, but also Americans in general, think about constitutional interpretation. I think one of the great examples of that influence was, and again, I recommend to people, we'll put a link in the show notes to where people can listen to the oral arguments, but um, one of the three advocates that was before the court 
uh, was Elizabeth Prelogger, who is the Solicitor General of the United States. And mm -hmm. the question that was put to her, which was basically, you know, she, she's arguing for a stare decisis upholding of Roe and Casey. That like we people have come to rely on that. There's an expectation for it. Although I think to the great extent, to, to Sam, to your point about how um, it comes up in every judicial nomination, um, that certainly doesn't seem to communicate stability. Uh, that it has to be asked about quite that regularly. Right. But, you know, right. you think if it were settled, you wouldn't have to ask the question. Right. But um, be that as it may, the question that was put to uh, Prelogger was basically if you got – an, you know, if the court clearly got something wrong, um, wouldn't it be proper to overturn it immediately? And the vehicle through which they asked this question was Plessy v. Ferguson. And it puts Prelogger in this difficult position of – of course, she's not going to say, no, Plessy should have been uh, upheld or there should have been a longer process for, you know, uh, figuring all of that out. It shouldn't have been overturned immediately because it was wrong. She's not going to make that statement. And her answer was basically just to say the court has never done that, which is a good lawyer answer, right? Because she's not actually answering the question, but she made a true statement. Um, I think that that I think to me that was an example of the way that the Federalist Society has managed to refocus the way that we talk about these kinds of questions through a legal framework, which has been a, a tremendous success that it kind of pains me to see a lot of people not appreciate when it's kind of right there before your eyes. Yes. And uh, I thought it was interesting that Justice Breyer basically – he took that line, right, as I understand it, through in his position in terms of the questioning of, that happened last week was basically to appeal to this. Uh, of course, that doesn't help you when it comes to the, what is it, separate but equal? Yes. yes. <laughs> separate and equal that the Supreme Court was uh, articulating before the Civil War and uh, remained a sort of type of very influential position until Bryan versus Board of Education. So, you know, there's, plenty, there's actually plenty of cases where the Supreme Court has reversed previous decisions or changed lots and lots of previous decisions. So, um, so, the, <laughs> so uh, you've got to be – I mean, stare decisis does point to a very important po uh, principle, which is judicial consistency and stability of mm -hmm. law. And that matters. That's important. You can't – one of the characteristics of rule of law is that basic stability so that – the law is not constantly being changed in ways that makes it impossible to know what the law is so that you can obey the law. So stare decisis is very important, but it's not something that shuts down uh, any reflection about whether courts have made substantive, um, uh, substantive mistakes in the past. And I, I have to say also in relation to this, I thought it was very interesting that Justice Sotomayor didn't even pretend, didn't even pretend that she was going to be looking at this from the standpoint of law. She basically made straight political arguments and asked straight political questions. Which I think is also right. really revealing, right? Because, yes. you know, it's the question of whether that overturning Roe and Casey would be viewed as political. Um, to me, she gives the game away because right. it's already viewed as political because right. people view the court's action in the first place. Right. As political. Absolutely. And she actually said, wouldn't this mean that people would look at us as politicized? And I, I thought to myself, lady, they Too late. already do. Too late. Absolutely. <laughs> and the way Too you're late. talking is reinforcing precisely why they think so. Let's, let's wrap this up here. And Dan, I'll come to you first. Um, and uh, just to get your thoughts on 
there seems to be an assumption that if Roe and Casey are overturned, that we would have this fever pitch kind of political battle, of people losing their minds over what would happen here. And I think that we will see the signal flares of that kind of thing happening. But let me offer what I think is a sign that perhaps we're not in for that kind of combustibility that people think that we are. In Virginia, in the election that just happened, the gubernatorial election uh, between Terry McAuliffe, the Democrat, and Glenn Youngkin, the Republican, uh, one of the major talking points in McAuliffe's campaign was to point to the Dobbs case, say it's possible that the governor of this state would have a lot of control over the issue of abortion. And do you want that to be Glenn Youngkin or do you want that to be me? And if you look at the exit polls, caveat emptor about exit polls, uh, it was not in a big issue for people. It was somewhere around eighth, I think, on the ranking of most important issues. I don't know that this is truly an issue that it certainly motivates the people that care only and primarily about this issue on either side. But for most other people, it's somewhere further down in a matrix. And while you would have um, the most committed members of the pro-life and pro-choice movements that would be combustible about this, I don't know that most people would be the same. And I think Virginia is a signal that even though that reality was clearly there of what was going to happen, what could happen in the Dobbs case, it didn't really resonate with people. You'll have, I mean, you'll, you'll have activists very uh, worked up or celebratory. You will have a bunch in the media class very much in the same sort of camps. Um, but I think, you know, most most people don't know. I mean, most people don't know the broad spectrum of uh, sort of regulatory regimes in the world governing abortion and what they are and how they differ. And the reality of it is, is, is barring, you know, an application of the 14th Amendment um, to the unborn, what we'll be looking at is a, a bunch of different ways in which, uh, in which abortion rights are, are more restricted probably varying across jurisdictions. And when you ask, when you, when you talk to people, and this is, this is a, good, a good tact that I always take when I talk to uh, pro-choice folks, um, you know, and I say, you know, are you, are you aware of sort of what an outlier the United States is, even among Western democracies in its policy? And would you really um, go through sleepless nights if the United States abortion regime looked more like that of France? Because that is, practically speaking, um, <clears throat> Mississippi. The, yeah, yeah. The, <laughs> what, the, what is proposed for Mississippi? That's exactly right. Yeah. Um, and and this is and this is one of those things where I think I think the vast majority of people, um, if they don't understand this legally, they understand it intuitively. That the stakes are not quite as high as many would have them believe, and there are there are other issues, and there and there are people, there are pro-choice people who wouldn't lose a lot of sleep at night if abortion restrictions were somewhat greater in the United States. Um, and I think, and I think that 
that's that shows up in in the election data in how low of a priority this is for for many voters who are even pro-choice voters. Yeah, I, I uh, Sam, hear your thoughts on this real quick. And I, I think that's true in that, you know, most people, most people would not put themselves completely into one of those two camps. They're, you know, they're pro-choice up to a point or they're pro-life with some exceptions. And we can have philosophical and theological disagreements with all of that. But that is where the American people actually are. Sam, do you, how combustible do you think it would actually be if Roe and Casey were overturned? I agree with Dan. I think the, there would be activists on the pro-choice side who would be outraged. Uh, there'll be lots of fundraising letters going out from Planned Parenthood. There will be state governors on the East Coast and the West Coast who will, who will um, immediately declare that a piece of legislation that protects quote-unquote abortion rights is, is, now in, is, now act, is now activated, is now, ready, is now um, on the books, and now it's, it's applicable, etc. Um, there would be states and other parts of the country that I suspect would probably legislate to put um, even more restrictions in place on uh, abortion. So I think you'd end up with a jigsaw of legal arrangements throughout the United States. I think that's probably the most likely outcome. And it reflects what I would imagine to be the where this prevailing sentiment is in different parts of the country on this this very difficult issue. So you'd have places like New York and California where it's basically on demand, et cetera, et cetera, and then other places where it becomes much more difficult to access abortion where it's very difficult for Planned Parenthood to set up abortion clinics, et cetera. And, but I, I don't see – I mean I'm sure in the next <laughs> – towards the uh, end of the 2022 electoral cycle, right, there will be plenty of um, – if, if the court rules to restrict the abortion regime, there will be plenty of um, people on the left and politically speaking who will, you know, go to the barricades for this, et cetera, et cetera. I'm skeptical that it will actually have as much as an impact upon the electoral cycle as some people think it would. Because I think, you know, Americans are all over the place, as you say. I mean, um, and it's partly because I think, as Dan points out, people don't understand what an extreme regime the America, America has right now. It's right up there with China, by the way, when it comes to this particular issue. Um, Western European countries have much more restrictive regimes than we do. And that's partly because it was done legislatively mm -hmm. rather than through courts. Well, since we're also in a, a culture and a media culture that is interested in investigating the, um, the history of regimes that are uh, systemically racist in American history, I look forward uh, perhaps as this issue gets more and more attention to somebody uh, discovering Planned Parenthood. Um, well, let's move on to a different topic, which is there was an interesting piece in National Review uh, by Nate Hockman, who we've had on the Act in Line podcast a couple of times, a very interesting young conservative writer at National Review, uh, called The Blake Masters Vision. So Blake Masters is a former uh, number two to Peter Thiel, uh, co-author of Peter Thiel's book Zero to One. Uh, he is running for the Senate in Arizona. And he is, uh, for his campaign, a central focus of it, <clears throat> is a simple sentence. In America, 
you should be able to raise a family on one single income. That is uh, one of his advertisements, and it's been a mantra for him on the campaign trail. So, Sam, I will go to you first. Um, I would imagine that you. Well, I won't even know. I, I won't even assume your opinion, Sam. Do you agree that uh, in America you should be able to raise a family on one single income? Should. <laughs> uh, um. Well, it's obviously good if one parent can devote a considerable amount of time to raising their children. And in fact, we already have laws, tax laws, for example, that are sort of in a way trying to point in that direction. So the tax deduction for the number of children uh, you have. So, you know, I have a certain sympathy for the position because I think it's really important for children to have a parent around, young children in particular, to have a parent around all the time. But it's not, it's not the, it's not so much the goal, it's the means, I think, that's, that's really up for discussion. Now, maybe it would be the case that it would be easier for people to do this if they had less taxes to pay, right? So, I mean, <laughs> that's, that I think is part of the dynamic that we find, that people are paying whatever levels of taxes. And for that reason, that's one, re- one reason why in some parts of the country they find themselves... Um, deciding against their better inclinations that they're, or their, their own preferences that they'd rather do this, that, that they, they're effectively going to be a two-income family. So I think if one wanted to move in that direction, there's lots and lots of different things I think you could do with the tax regime, with, um, with uh, uh, the way that business regulation is treated, et cetera. There's lots of different things. Um, but, it's, it's, so it's very, but it's very unclear to me when they say they want this – how they propose to get there. And I think in many cases they have a vision of 1950s America. We've talked about a little bit about this before. But women were already starting to work in large numbers in the workforce in this sort of so-called golden period of the 1950s when um, you had the nuclear family and the man went off to the office and the mother stayed home and that was... I mean, we know now that that wasn't quite the reality. Um, so there are, so, and, and the other thing to keep in mind is that it's also very difficult to raise a family if you don't have a sufficient income. And for some people, given their particular circumstances, given their particular qualifications or credentials, given where they're living in the different, part, different parts of the country, in some cases, a, a two-income situation is optimal for them rather than less than optimal. So while one can talk about trying to move um, society in this particular direction, um, I think there's just a lot of very complicated policy issues that would be needed to be worked through. And we shouldn't also, I don't think we should be in the business of penalising those families where where the, the, the spouses decide that both of them are going to work. I, I, that's, I'm slightly worried when I hear some of this talk that it will mean, okay, so we're going to actually make it hard for those people who want to have a dual income to do so. I, I, I haven't heard people say that, but that's where I worry some of this discussion might end up going. And I think that in many respects, it should be up to families to make the most optimal decision for themselves given the context that they're living in. And we can change that context up to a certain extent to maybe nudge things in particular ways. But I'd be careful about sort of saying, okay, now we need to reorientate the entire American economy 
to achieve this one particular end, however worthy it may or may not be. As an aspirational slogan, it's fine. I'd also like yeah. to see affordable health care for all. I would also like to see yeah. a chicken in every pot and every man a king. All of those things are wonderful. Um, but um, <clears throat> how you get there with policy and also how you get there – I mean, Elizabeth Warren – wrote a book uh, on the dual income trap a while ago. And this is language, this is a conversation that she's largely dropped as someone of the left. And I think one of those reasons isn't that her convictions have changed, but this doesn't um, register with a lot of voters as a big, because there, there, there are people who find themselves in various circumstances where one spouse works full-time, another works part-time. Maybe, you know, both spouses work full-time. Maybe there's seasonal employment for one. Um, there's, a, there's a lot going on. And when you go back to that vision of 1950s America, I mean, this is, this is the life that my grandfather led. My grandfather was a salesman. He raised four children. His wife, my grandmother, stayed at home with those kids. But this involved him traveling all over the country. This involved when family vacation time came, you know, the, 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 the kids and, and mom would, you know, be at the lake for a month and he would be there maybe for a week, week and a half with them, but would be on the road otherwise, making the sacrifices necessary to have the sort of life for his family and by extension my family that he wanted. Um, and that comes out of a time and a place where the raw desire for that sort of life was so much greater and folks were willing to make sacrifices that perhaps many folks aren't willing to make today. I think you're absolutely on to something there, Dan. My, my problem with that slogan is that there is a part that is implicit to me, but unspoken. And that is, you know, people in America should be able to raise a family on one income. And the implicit silent part is at any cost and without any trade-offs. That's what bothers me about it. So Nate, had, Nate Hockman had another piece around Thanksgiving um, looking at some of the rhetoric that both the left and the right have, Democrats and Republicans have, around uh, work, family orientation, and GDP growth. And <clears throat> I agree with some of the criticisms, particularly of uh, of Democrats when talking about, like, the Build Back Better Act, um, make, you know, child uh, child uh, uh, caregiving accessible and affordable to help people get back to work and this prioritization of, like, that people should be getting back to work, that people should be going to work. I... I I share some of the criticisms of the way that, that the orientation of that rhetoric always goes. But my, my problem with it is what, again, is implicit in that slogan to me, that is unspoken in that slogan, that it should be at any cost, which is to say that the federal government, what I hear, should spend anything that it has to, should do anything that it has to, to guarantee that this is a possibility for anybody who wants to choose it. Um, and then without regard to trade-offs. And so my 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 bigger problem here, and and he goes on to Hockman goes on to reference um, some Gallup polling from 2019, 
that uh, 50% of women with children under the age of 18, quote, would prefer to stay at home and take care of the house and family. With women who are not currently employed, that number jumps to 67%. Uh, Mothers who have left the workforce to raise their children are doing so because they want to. That's Nate's claim. I don't know that I completely agree with that last part. Um, But look at, again, just the phrasing of the Gallup poll question, would prefer to stay at home and take care of the house and family. Okay, I'd prefer to have a Ferrari. I wouldn't prefer to have to endure the cost of having a Ferrari. And what I think is the reality here, and again, in not every case, I'm generalizing, but in these conversations, you kind of have to. If people, I know people who live that lifestyle, who have one person who works, one um, of the other spouse stays at home and primarily raises the kids, whether that involves homeschooling um, or or not, or is just in a, in a more domestic capacity there. They make sacrifices, like you said. You can live like your grandparents did. You, but, you know, if it, in my case, with my grandparents who had, who raised four kids, they lived in a smaller house. They, uh, my, my grandmother was a child of the depression. She scraped the burnt part off of the toast. If she burnt the toast rather than throwing the piece of toast away to not waste anything at all, uh, people could go out to, you know, they'd have to go out to eat less. There are fewer Uber eats orders. They, you know, uh, you can live that lifestyle if you choose. But what these people are often saying, I think is people, Americans should be able to raise a family on one income. And again, silent and implicit after that, at the same standard of living of two incomes. That is what I think is really at play here. And I have no problem if people want to choose to you know, be have one spouse at home raising kids. In fact, I would encourage it. I think it's fantastic. It's not a decision my wife and I have made. I respect people whose decision it is. But the idea that there's some communal obligation them to subsidize their lifestyle so that they can still be consumers to the same extent that they are under two incomes, I just don't think follows. Yes, because I think you're pointing to the issue of trade-offs. You're talking – you're pointing to questions about – and this is also implicit, right? This is what not as often said, but this is often implicit, that the government needs to embark upon systematic restructuring, if you like, of the economy in order to realize this particular objective, worthy as it is. And I think it's a worthy objective. And um, it's not a cost, would not be a cost-free exercise. And there would be other things that would be lost, which I assume some conservatives would uh, also be reluctant to see disappear. Uh, so this is so this is the question this is the problem when you have these as Dan says you sort of these sort of aspirational slogans that are articulated but without consideration about what that would actually mean. I'd be very interested to hear and and, and uh, explore what um, free market economists are saying about this. I'm sure that some of them have thought very carefully about this question in terms of not just in terms of how you might get there but also the trade-offs that would be associated with um, trying to do that as well. And then we could have, I think, a proper conversation about some of these, these the ways in which social policy is impacted by economic truth. We could have that type of conversation in a way that I think is much more constructive than I think it's presently heading right now. I think, I mean, there's a couple of 
very straightforward ways you could do this. One is the change in monetary policy, which we've discussed. <laughs> um, the inflationary monetary policy we have today is not going to make it easier for to raise a child or a family on one income. If we look at, you know, the three, you know, three of the largest budget items in many households are, uh, <clears throat> you know, our rent, our education, our health care, three of the most highly regulated uh, points in our economy where there's already, you know, a tremendous amount of government intervention. Um, so there, I mean, there are ways that I think you can make life more affordable for Americans in general, which will make the trade-offs for those who desire to uh, raise a family on one income easier to do. Um, but that is a mammoth reform effort, and that involves uh, taking on entrenched interests. Um, there's a reason we have the policy we have now. One of the reasons in housing policy, for instance, you know, this benefits already existing homeowners, which is a very large constituency. Appreciating home prices benefit realtors, another constituency. So like there are, I think, I think ways you could move forward to make those sacrifices less onerous, um, to make them perhaps like the sort of sacrifices you'd have to make in the 1950s when you had a very different education, housing, and healthcare environment than you do now. But those sorts of policies aren't what I see being discussed by a lot of these folks that have this aspirational messaging. It would be really interesting to see what, uh, as for example, to follow up on Dan, would be what a significant reform of the tax code would look like if one was to sort of try and uh, create circumstances that would make this aspirational much more real. I, I think <clears throat> uh, it would be a major reform effort. As Dan says, there'd be numerous interest groups that would be opposing it. But if people are going to make this aspirational claim, then I think it's incumbent upon them to to show how this would occur and to acknowledge the different both in terms of confronting different interest groups, but also in terms of um, what would the trade-offs involved be and putting those squarely in front of voters so that then they can make a choice. I welcome the conversation about what kinds of policy changes could be engaged with in order to make people who wish to make this kind of decision to have one spouse stay at home and, and raise a family easier on them. But I, I just want a recognition that there are costs associated with that In at a time where we are talking about um, how many trillion dollars of debt that we have, that we are, again, borrowing against future generations that are going to have to pay all of that off. And the burden of having to pay all of that off is going to make those kinds of decisions harder and harder for people further down the line. And when this thing gets constantly framed against like, you know, this, you know, oh, great God of GDP growth that we, you know, is that the old regime says we can't question, we have to keep growing and growing and growing. Without that kind of growth in the future, the what it is going to cost us in order to pay off all of those obligations is going to become more and more onerous if the economy does not continue to grow. These things are intention. 
And I would just really wish for an acknowledgement, a clear acknowledgement that there are trade-offs, that these things are intention. And it is not just as easy. And with you know, all due respect to Blake Masters, he's running a political campaign. Political campaigns are based on sloganeering. I understand that. But we should endeavor to take a little more seriously the sloganeering in terms of how it plays out and what it is actually going to cost us at the end of the day if we're going to go down that road. I agree. And I I think that um, uh, without that type of serious discussion, then it's basically a a rhetorical exercise. And I would like to think that uh, serious people, I think Blake Masters is a serious guy. I mean, I I followed him a little bit. I think he he makes some very interesting points. He's clearly an intelligent, well-informed person. But if you're going to say things like that, then okay, tell us what that means. What do you actually propose and are people willing to face up to that? And as for the growth thing, you know, I I wish people would understand how difficult economic growth is. It's not the norm in human history. It's it's norm. You know, normally we're stuck with uh, for the human history, we have been more or less either in a position of no growth or, or or actual degradation of economic activity. Growth is a very difficult thing to achieve. 1%, 2%, 4% growth. It's just not as easy as people say. When I hear people say, well, couldn't we just give up 1% growth in return for name your aspirational slogan? You want to say, well, you need to understand what that would actually entail in terms of things like poverty, provision of public resources, the tax base, America's ability to defend itself, etc., the connection there that I think needs to be made more often is that the idea that uh, the, the cultivation of the family and economic growth are not things we should be looking at adversarially. They are connected and they are important to each other. And the way that this often gets positioned as them being uh, adversaries, I don't think is helpful to the conversation. Right. Let's call it a wrap there. Thank you for listening to Acton Unwind. If you're listening to this podcast on our website, we thank you, but we ask that you take a look in the show notes where you will find a link where you can subscribe directly to this podcast. Or you can just search Acton Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, so that more people can find this program. Thanks to Sam. Thanks to Dan for the Acton Institute. This is Eric Cohn. We'll see you next week.